Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 76, A Christmas Carol. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forward to the future while learning from the past. This episode, BVS and A Christmas Carol. This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC Films and who love to chew their food. Merry Christmas! Tis the season for another foray into English lit, this time comparing A Christmas Carol to BVS. Unlike our earlier Arthurian influence, the parallels here are perhaps less intended, and accordingly imperfect, especially as to timing, causation, and casting. But there are still lessons to be learned in the analysis of one to find insights in the other showing that our love for these films is not misplaced, but grounded in ideas nearly two centuries old. We'll fly through the history, style, and structure, then dig down into the work itself in terms of characters, acts, and themes. So A Christmas Carol was written in just six weeks by Charles Dickens and published shortly after the Christmas of 1843. Later, we'll mention the context of Carol's societal commentary, but the historical context that I want to highlight now is how A Christmas Carol is a collision of two popular fads, in perhaps the same way that BVS is a collision of two pop culture figures, Batman and Superman. Superman. For A Christmas Carol, it was a combination of mid-Victorian spiritualism and a Christmas holiday revival. The spiritualism of the era involved seeking out dead spirits through mediums, seances, and the occult, leading to gothic trends in art and literature. While Christmas had been celebrated as a Christian holiday on December 25th since the Middle Ages, in 1800s England, it had essentially become little more than a two-day work break, devoid of any trappings, traditions, or cultural significance. I think it's absolutely true that what was happening to Christmas at the time had become diminished from the way it was in, say, the Middle Ages. And what Dickens did was to refresh, to find those elements of the spirit of Christmas and give them new life. He blew the dust off the old traditions, he polished up the holly berries and the mistletoe berries, and he gave people something new. It's similar to the way Snyder goes back to the underlying psychology or Golden Age origins to represent it to a modern audience as something new while still traditional. He wasn't alone in doing this either. I think he was very influenced by the American writer Washington Irving. That spirit, which I think Washington Irving had already established, of the idea of the family at Christmas, the idea of log fires and the whole family gathered together around the hearth, and munificence and kindness and goodwill and good feeling. And just as Snyder is not solely responsible for our present superhero saturation, another source of the Victorian Christmas resurgence comes from the era's eponym, Media interest in the young Queen Victoria and her consort, Prince Albert, reached a fever pitch in the 40s. Like the tabloids of today, the popular press reported on every detail of the young couple's life, including their Christmas traditions and celebrations, most notably a highly publicized picture of their Christmas tree. The Christmas tree had been a custom in parts of Germany for centuries, and for the British royal family since about 1800, but it was an engraving in the Illustrated London News which brought the tradition 
to the public imagination. It was effectively a royal endorsement. The article was entitled, The Christmas Tree at Windsor Castle. The article reads, The tree employed for this festive purpose is a young fir of about eight feet high and has six tiers of branches. On each tier are arranged a dozen wax tapers. Pendant from the branches are elegant trays, baskets, bonbonnières, and other receptacles for sweetmeats of the most vivid and expensive kind. Fancy cakes, gilt gingerbread, and eggs filled with sweetmeats are also suspended by various coloured ribbons from its branches. The tree, which stands upon a table covered with white damask, is supported at the roots by piles of sweets and by toys and dolls of all description suited to the youthful fancy and to the several ages of the interesting scions of royalty for whose gratification they are displayed. The name of each recipient is affixed to the doll, bonbon or other present intended for it so that no difference of opinion in the choice of dainties may arise to disturb the equanimity of the illustrious juveniles. On the summit of the tree stands the small figure of an angel with outstretched wings holding in each hand a wreath. These trappings were popularized as the middle classes rushed to emulate the royals with trees of their own, thus establishing this Christmas custom. The royal family leaned into the public enthusiasm and encouraged the spread of their traditions, including the yearly gift of Christmas trees to schools and army barracks that had been grown and harvested on the royal estates. And so A Christmas Carol was mashing together two things immensely popular, entwined, and also intention. Both Victoria an occult and Christmas holiday arise from pagan traditions, but differ on Christian doctrine. Similarly, BVS brings together the immensely popular entwined and intentioned Batman and Superman, both arising from the pages of DC Comics as the first superheroes, but who differ in disposition to this day. A Christmas Carol's immense success and popularity is oft credited as cementing many of our modern Christmas traditions, which came about during that decade. The Christmas tree, the Christmas card, along with the Christmas cracker. We always associate Christmas with lots of things, Christmas decorations, turkey. A lot of that was invented by Charles Dickens with this story that Christmas before he wrote A Christmas Carol in 1843 wasn't quite the Christmas we recognise today. But a lot of the elements that we think have been there forever were actually invented by Charles Dickens. So it's as if Dickens is standing over us when we have our Christmas party. The Dickens' own Yuletide traditions show up in the story and would influence the way readers celebrated Christmas. There are records of various people in London who decided after reading A Christmas Carol that they were going to go out and buy a turkey and make sure that that was part of their Christmas meal. Is Dickens the man who invented Christmas? No, there's a lot going on before then. So that, in fact, Dickens, in his very early writings, is looking back to a happy Christmas before then. So he transforms it, he reinterprets it, but no, it doesn't begin with him. Well, that's right. Of course Christmas was celebrated before he wrote Christmas Carol, yes. He didn't invent it, but he did something for it, something quite unique. He He gave it a position somehow in our lives. He gave it meaning. It had no real meaning before. It, it It was simply an affable celebration. These films didn't invent Batman or Superman, but they gave their causes a basis that is applicable to everyone, not just those with charmed lives whose circumstances have been written to accommodate them. While the rise in spiritualism and the forging of Christmas traditions may have well been byproducts of the Industrial Revolution's rapidly changing world, perhaps a little like 
like how our information age is constantly changing, making that RSS line from Man of Steel already a little dated. <laughs> the Victorians saw innovations like the telegraph, postage stamp, revolver, and calculator, and today we've got autonomous vehicles, VR headsets, 3D printing, and artificial intelligence. The pace of change makes us want to establish fixed traditions like Christmas or Superman. Yet with endless possibility and scientific explanation afoot, we also pursue the impossible and unexplained, like spiritualism and spectacle on the silver screen. As Dickens has provided his audience with a new and relevant twist to the Christmas tradition, these DC films have provided the same. Seeing his aesthetic, what he did with Man of Steel, I was like, oh, these are these are superhero movies with consequence. I mean, how can you beat that? Like, we've seen all the other iterations for so long. For me personally, I'm like, I need something new. I need something that speaks to the way the world is today, not this idealized sort of yesteryear version of who these individuals are. The world is complicated. It's very complicated. The heroes need to be just as complicated to help people deal with the circumstances that we're facing every single day. <laughs> we have to deal with what is, not what we desire to be. You know what I mean? Finally, an interesting footnote is that Dickens was among the first to popularize serialized fiction, released in installments. And you could draw the parallel that either superheroes came out as periodicals, or that franchise films have sequels, prequels, arcs, and installments. Okay, in terms of stylistic parallels, let me just quickly touch on five. First, the gothic. Second, contemporary. Third, themed. Fourth, extravagant. And fifth and finally, the five-act structure. On gothic elements, the genre was highly popular in Victorian England, which went along with the spiritualist movement of the time. Hallmarks of gothic works include the eerie and mysterious, atmospheric, isolated, fearful, and especially supernatural, strange visions, omens, and nightmares, ghosts and malevolent spirits, and unlike more forward tales, the stories were often romantic, criminal, psychological, and featured flawed protagonists or anti-heroes. I'm sure you could see how these apply to the Batman mythos generally and our comparative works specifically. On the next point of common style, they are both contemporary stories, set in the time and the world of their publication, be that the 1840s or the 2010s. They render intricate societal backdrops that involve and comment on our present-day world, be that the political landscape of the late Industrial Revolution or the nature of discourse in a post-9-11 multimedia landscape ruled by multi-billion dollar entities. Consider for a second, why does a Christmas ghost story and a superhero blockbuster both cite to the state of prisons, the plight of the poor, and wealth inequality? Food for thought. Which leads us to our third common style point, that both works are heavily themed and have those genre hooks. A lifelong activist and champion for the welfare of all, Dickens was greatly moved by a government report describing the working conditions of women and children in the mines and factories. The abuses described horrified him, such that he vowed to, quote, strike a sledgehammer blow on behalf of the poor man's child. The original intention was to write an article, but in October, he decided that a story would better convey the horrors of what was happening to the public. He composed that manuscript in just six weeks, borrowing from the fans of the day to create an engaging tale. And I've made this argument before, but the accessibility and interest in Batman and Superman are why they're an apt vehicle for a heavier didactic message that we're unwilling to hear any other way. Both works slightly signal their sense of outreach 
with their cheeky titles. Why did he call it a Christmas carol? It's a very good question, that, because if you ask what genre it belongs mm. to, what kind of book is it? Well, it's a parable, it's an allegory, it's a ghost story, it's a fairy tale. It, it's not a carol. Well, I think what he likes about the word carol is that it's a popular form, so that it's both to do with the season and it's a, it's a story so fascinated by time and interrupting time and disrupting time, but it's also popular festive celebration. So carols are things that ordinary people sing at Christmas that are related to Christianity but aren't identical with it. So I think that's what he likes about the word. Christmas carols are something we're all familiar with, participate in, and enjoy, regardless of the underlying faith. Everybody knows Silent Night and Joy to the World, and the genre of a versus story is something that's a similar draw. Even without being a superhero fan, everyone knows Superman and Batman. Although A Christmas Carol is far from a carol, and BVS is unlike any other versus movie out there. Both works are not their first foray into the genre. Dickens had two ongoing periodicals that prominently featured ghost stories, and Snyder had several comic book films under his belt before BVS. Each had honed their craft, and both stories still managed to have broad appeal while forwarding positions of substance. And it's because of those popular themes that both works could afford significant investment, which is our fourth common point of extravagance. While Oddball Superhero Fair is more often given a budget like Joker or Deadpool, for the world's finest, essentially no expense was spared. Similarly, Dickens knew that he had a potential hit on his hands and went all out for the publication of Carol. He wanted it to be a very attractive little book, so he wanted his publishers to spare no expense. This included coloured illustrations, hand-painted illustrations, which was, of course, enormously expensive. So that there was a contradiction there. I mean, Dickens wanted the book to reach the poorest readers, but it would be impossible for the publishers to publish it at less than five shillings, which was an enormous sum, uh, of course, for a, a working-class family to afford. BVS has a little of the same paradox, being a comic book film made to be accessible to people who haven't bought into the comic book tropes and preconceptions, but inevitably mostly marketed to and viewed by, first and foremost, the very same comic book fundamentalists that the movie somewhat seeks to repudiate and escape. The same way Carol critiqued the rich, who ironically were the only ones who could afford the work initially. But eventually, of course, was put on the stage. Dickens couldn't control this. I mean, there was no copyright protection in those days, so that dramatists were free to seize on the work of novelists and turn them into plays and put them on the stage. And I think there were about five different versions of The Carol running at the uh, at different London theatres within weeks of the publication. He had hoped that the carol would earn him a great deal of money, but in fact the costs of production were so enormous that his profit in the end was very little. He could do nothing to stop the pirate. He couldn't do anything about all the dramatizations. So he had the mortification of seeing lots and lots of people making lots and lots of money out of the carol, but he himself not at all making as much as he thought. However, it did hugely increase the intensity of that love affair between himself and his public, that relationship that he called personally affectionate and like no other man's. 
so we've got several parallels. While the initial commercial success is challenged by some, it's unquestionable that what Snyder started has resulted in billion-dollar franchises. From his foundation, his world, his casting, his works have become more popular after the fact, and one need not look any further than the Snyder Cut movement to see how the love between creator and audience has exploded and deepened. Now, as you heard in that clip, part of the poor returns on Carol for Dickens was how readily it could be performed, essentially replacing the market for the book. Nonetheless, this was always an intended feature. Do you think his writing is informed by the fact that he was going to perform it? Definitely. He was a performer to his bootstraps. He just loved performing. He loved standing up on a stage and being all the different characters. And when he was writing, I believe, he used to do the same thing. He used to look at the mirror sometimes and just spout the words that he had just written. And he performed brilliantly in his books and brilliantly on stage. I would have given anything to have been at those readings. Dickens himself had a modified version he would perform on tour. From December 1853 onwards, Charles Dickens began to give public readings of A Christmas Carol. He first performed the book, the whole book, in a packed Birmingham town hall to raise money for a working men's institute before cutting it down from three hours to two to 90 minutes. From 1857, he went on a coast-to-coast -to -coast tour to over a hundred venues. It was an extremely lucrative business for Dickens, both in the British Isles and particularly when he came to the United States. In the space of only, let's say, five months that he was here, he was able to make the equivalent of two million pounds in today's money. And in fact, it was the best way to capitalize on his fame in the United States. Though he had a publisher here, he was so extensively pirated by so many other printers that he didn't get the royalties on the work that he was entitled to. And so in order to turn his popularity in the US into money, he went on tour, which is you know what your bands do today in order to make money because they can't make money selling records any longer. And the work remains readily adaptable as proven by the many adaptations over the last two centuries. Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. <clears throat> the Marleys were dead to begin with. Oh, well, pardon me? Marley was dead to begin with. There was no doubt whatever about that. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. Marley is dead. No, I'm not. <laughs> Yet you are. In the last half century alone, there have been over 250 stage and film adaptations, not to mention reprints, sequels, recordings, radio versions, comics, even advertisements. The work was always intended to be dramatized, performed, and theatrical in nature, and much of that is owed to its Shakespearean five-act structure. Dickens has deliberately chosen a five-act structure for his novel. This is actually typical of a Shakespearean tragedy, a play. He makes his narrator refer to the ghost of Shakespeare's most famous tragedy, Hamlet, right at the start of this novel, just to make sure that we know what he is up to. He's playing with the idea of tragedy. However, because this 
this is an inspirational story for Christmas, Dickens has the wonderful idea to call these acts, these chapters, staves. Now, these are the five parts of A Christmas Carol that you might sing at church, just as his audience would. The intention, of course, is to be uplifting. He hints that, although Scrooge's story could have been a Shakespearean tragedy, Scrooge's transformation is an uplifting celebration of Christmas, celebrating the power of humanity and family and redemption and rebirth. And so that's our fifth and final point of stylistic commonality, the unusual but no less effective five-act structure shared by BVS. And of course, there's extensive analysis of that elsewhere. I'll put some links in the show notes. And as raised by that clip, both works are filled with literary references and a celebration of their subject. Okay, so all of that was to give us some background context, but let's get to the actual thesis of this entire episode, the baseline analogy that's meant to illuminate these works. And it's just this, Scrooge is to Christmas as Batman is to Superman. So if we were retitling our stories to match, you might say Scrooge v. Christmas, Dawn of Goodwill, or a Superman song. (laughs) In both, our anti-hero has an issue with a general virtue, which becomes a war with a particular representative example, before receiving redemption and adopting those values. For the miserly Scrooge, he has an issue with goodwill and generosity in general all year round. But it comes to a head with Christmas in particular as a concept, and so he is at war with the Christmas holiday. Not Christmas 1843 specifically, who he later meets as the ghost of Christmas present. And so there's this general virtue of goodwill, the war with the concept of Christmas, and later the singular incarnation of the Phantom of 1843. For the angry Batman, he has an issue with heroism in general and is completely cynical by the time of BVS. But it all comes to a head with the Superman, in particular as a concept. So he's at war with the Superman, which is just another way of saying superhero before it's become a thing. And not the actual person of Superman, Clark Kent, Kal-El, lover of Lois, son of Martha, and so on. Just as Scrooge v. Christmas is Scrooge against the idea of Christmas, not Christmas 1843 in particular, from this perspective, Batman v. Superman is Batman against the idea of Superman, the superhero, not Clark in particular. One of the reasons that he never bothers to uncover his identity. And just as Scrooge has a miraculous conversion saying, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. Meaning, more than just Christmas 1843, beyond December 25th, but embracing the general virtue of goodwill. Batman has his miraculous conversion saying, I failed him in life, I won't fail him in death. Meaning, more than just Clark, and beyond supporting superheroes conceptually, but embracing the general virtue of heroism again. They both become torchbearers. Scrooge becomes a champion of Christmas the way Batman becomes a champion of superheroes, Superman's progeny, as he seeks to assemble and guide them in the next film. And so that's the main idea. Now let's quickly run through our cast and themes, and then we'll explore it all a little more thoroughly afterwards. Now, as I've disclaimed before, many of these are imperfect, the dynamic's different, but please bear with me until we discuss it. And so, Ebenezer Scrooge is Bruce Wayne. Bob Cratchit is Alfred. Jacob Marley is Wallace Keefe. The Ghost of Christmas Past is Robin. The Ghost of Christmas Present is Superman. The Ghost of Christmas Future is Flash. And Tiny Tim is Martha Kent. 
And as we go act by act, we'll elaborate and maybe fill in some of the other roles as well. And while we're doing all that, you can keep in mind some of these common themes or concepts. One, coping with woundedness, with isolation and anger. Two, cynicism versus sincerity. Three, societal commentary. Four, showing the darkness to find the light. Five, transformation and redemption. And six, accounting for time. So Carol is broken into five sections that Dickens calls staves. That's the term for a stanza or verse sticking with his theme or idea of a carol. But in summary, we have stave one, which is our introduction and Jacob Marley. Staves two through four are the visitation by each ghost. And finally, stave five, where Ebenezer wakes up on Christmas morning. In stave one, we open with the death of Jacob Marley seven years ago to the day on Christmas. And so the audience is already introduced to death, and Scrooge has cause to associate Christmas with something more than just the holiday. Similarly, BVS opens with death and visions, and mankind is introduced to the Superman, his father getting gunned down trying to be a hero, and everything Bruce suffers through the BZE shows us why Bruce has cause to associate heroism and that day differently than the consensus. While society at large celebrates Superman, writing him in puff pieces and erecting a statue in his honor, for Bruce it was a day of death and loss of perhaps of his father's last friend, Jack O'Dwyer. While everyone else celebrates Christmas, spreading joy and goodwill, for Scrooge it was a day of death and loss of perhaps his last friend, as he'll say to Jacob later, quote, You were always a good friend to me. And then both stories leap forwards in time and introduce us to our anti-heroes properly. We are shown how angry, off-putting, isolated, and cruel they both are. How people recoil in fright from them. And we're shown how they embrace their outsider status. They're not worried about conventional courtesy or opinion. We're shown how they both treat their subordinates poorly and dismiss their views. So... Specifically, we see Scrooge as he terrorizes people in the streets and Batman terrifying everyone in his costumed introduction. Scrooge is happy to be regarded as uncharitable, just as Batman happily labels himself a criminal. Finally, Scrooge belittles Bob's views on Christmas as Batman belittles Alfred's views on heroism. Now, a part of us still likes our anti-heroes. Scrooge for his biting wit and being a bold outsider. Batman for his intense violence and being a cool vigilante. They both show a certain kind of strength from their minority position by hating something that everyone else likes. For Scrooge, Christmas is robbery. For Bruce, heroism is criminality. Yet neither are sympathetic to the plights of the age which they excuse with grand theoretical propositions. When Scrooge is solicited to help the less fortunate, he refuses saying, they can go to the prisons, they can go to the workhouses, or, quote, die to decrease the surplus population. Dickens is criticizing Malthusian economic theory, which placed the responsibility for the plight of the poor entirely upon their shoulders, suggesting that their suffering was necessary to inspire them to correct their own laziness and rise in life. Accordingly, acts of charity would only encourage them to tolerate their lot, and so with these philosophical gymnastics, Scrooge can claim to consider his refusal to care a kindness to the poor. Thomas Malthus argued that a surplus population meant that there would be more poor, and thus one should remove the poor to fix the issue, not improve their situation. Similarly, Batman believes that all heroes fall. Therefore, the solution is to get rid of the superhero before he falls, rather than try to improve the hero's ability to avoid or rebound from falls. 
Bruce deploys the 1% doctrine to argue that mankind is misled. The consequences of a fallen Superman, however small the chances, are so great that Batman has to save the people from themselves by slaying Superman. Accordingly to Batman, Superman's acts of heroism and rescue only encourage people to continue to tolerate him, a ticking time bomb waiting to burn it all down. And so Batman's plan to kill Superman, you know, the one that's actively and publicly saving people, is by this philosophy a kindness to save all people from Superman, right? <laughs> now we could also add Lex into the mix, but for now, let's not. <laughs> now what these high-minded rationalizations hold in common is that they are simply pretenses and insincere. Dickens also highlighted hypocrisy by distinguishing between those who held true and those who merely profess. He tends to put bad evangelical Christians in the early novels. They're often drunk while usually preaching temperance. But towards the end, absolutely, he puts some very good clergymen. And there's another good one in Edwin Drood as well. So he clearly varies it and wants to dramatise it. He hits hypocrisy. I think of Mr Bumble in Oliver Twist, who's always quoting religion and yet is insufferably pompous and unkind. He hated all of that. But I think you have to acknowledge that right at the heart of it was a very genuine, a deeply committed attachment to the figure of Christ. I think he did regard him as the absolute gold standard by which all human behavior should be judged. He absolutely didn't believe you should talk about religion at all. He hated that. And he hated anybody making pompous statements or definitive statements about religion. But he did believe absolutely. He parted this in every one of his children. He gave them a Bible. He really did believe in it. But he believed it in a very personal, intimate way. So BVS has the hypocrisy of people like Lex, who considers himself Prometheus, or Batman, who considers himself humanity's savior by way of the 1% doctrine, while the figure who has actually saved the planet and continues to save and rescue is humbly silent and doesn't preach his position. And also similar to that clip, you have the contrast between Bruce's extreme positions, either something is a perfect diamond absolute, or the view that absolutely everything is fallen and remains so, versus Clark's experience and understanding of complexity, the nuance of maybe. As we see in the beginning of BVS, Batman isn't there to rescue the trafficked women, or expand justice or save lives, but to torture out information and further his revenge, regardless of due process or if they die as collateral damage, which eventually Caesar Santos does. It's at least theoretically possible to sincerely hold these philosophies without cruelty, malice, or indifference, but that's not what we see from Scrooge or Batman. Their philosophical arguments is shown to be a sham and undone once it leaves the abstraction and is instantiated into a person, an individual, that they come to care for. For Scrooge, Tiny Tim cannot be called mere surplus population. And for Batman, becoming Joe Chill and letting Martha die isn't easily excused by the 1% doctrine. But of course, all of that is skipping to the end. Let's look at the next person in our cast. Cratchit is an associate who holds Christmas dearly and believes in goodwill even towards his horrible boss. And while the dynamic is different, Alfred is also an employee who keeps trying to remind Bruce of his heroic past, his effective deeds, and believes in Superman and his essential mission. He is not our enemy. Alfred also partly plays the role of Fred in their many verbal spars and as the recipient of Bah Humbug. As Scrooge goes home, we see that he's alone and that his residence is in decay, described as gloomy, old, and dreary. And his miserliness is for its own sake, as he's unwilling to spend for warmth, fine meals, residential improvements, or even light. Instead, quote, darkness is cheap and Scrooge liked it. Our other anti-hero is well known for his affinity for the dark, 
and also has a decaying residence which he declines to improve, as he lives a more Spartan existence in a separate stead. And similarly, he accumulates and hoards up his anger, not spent towards justice, but building into a rage which turns good men cruel. Scrooge then has an episode at his door, the first overt indication of the supernatural, only to be doubted and dismissed as an undigested meal, refusing to self-reflect on the implications of such a vision. And in parallel, Bruce has a terrifying nightmare in the family crypt. The gothic combo of visions, blood, death, graves, monsters, and omens, which Bruce never considers or reflects upon, instead getting hand-waved as the after-effects of a cocktail of pills, sex, and wine. One wonders if the first readers of Carol or viewers of BVS might have just simply considered the characters as mostly mad, crazy, and seeing things, instead of actually seeing things. So both these works put you into that place and mood before our encounter with the ghost of Jacob Marley. So what both Jacob Marley and Wallace Keefe share in common is that they are both periodic prophecies of what's to come. In Carol, this is the third time we've seen Jacob, first as a corpse in the introduction, second as the knocker, and now as a spirit. There's this gradual build until all our attention is on him. Similarly, in BVS, Wallace begins as a rescued employee, then unseen to Bruce as the one who sends back Chad and vandalizes statues until Keefe finally has Bruce's attention at Capitol Hill. Both begin as vaguely fond memories that turn into absolute terrors. Marley was a colleague with the same goals and attitudes, a good friend, and now this ghastly thing with unhinged jaw. Wallace was an employee who looked up to and appreciated Bruce. You're the boss, boss, and now a bloody terrorist. But even more personal is the idea that this is what our protagonist will be, if the warnings aren't heeded. For Jacob, it's one of my favorite lines from Carol. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it of my own free will and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Jacob's fate is Ebenezer's if he doesn't reform, and that's arguably true of Batman. Wallace began as a guard, somebody who protects, but afterwards, none of his accumulated resentment got him what he really needed or wanted, but instead made him a sacrificial pawn. And Batman was barreling down the same path if he allowed himself to be inflamed by the same passions and played by the same chess master. Keefe has also returned those checks that say, Be Wayne. I am your ghost, and B. Wayne, I haunt you. There's also a parallel on the point of money in both stories. Marley and Scrooge pursued money in life, but Marley shows that it's bondage in death. In BVS, when Bruce finally sees Keefe upset on screen, his first thought is, why hasn't he been compensated? Meaning, why would Keefe be upset if he had money? Bruce is being blind to the fact that all his billions of dollars haven't made him and Lex any less angry. And so Keefe rejects the checks because they don't address his anger the way that protest and testimony will. And it's perhaps more accurate to divide Marley's role across Wallace and Alfred. While Keefe is an example of what he will be, Alfred carries the message and motives of Marley, hoping for reform. A smaller tie between Marley and Keefe is their attachment to our principal protagonist. Scrooge was the sole friend and mourner at Marley's funeral. And arguably, Bruce is the only character in the film portrayed as having a fond and favorable memory of Keefe. To Bruce, Keefe was a brief reminder of the hero who still resided within, the one who runs towards collapsing towers and saves at least this employee. 
and even Keefe's own family had left him, so Bruce was the last one looking after his welfare, sending support checks afterwards. Thus, Bruce is the only one that Keefe can reach out to, whether by the return of his checks with messages meant for Bruce, or by crying out his name when arrested at Heroes Park, or by demanding that the viewers wake up. So in a world of people who love Christmas or adore Superman, only Marley and Scrooge, Wally and Bruce, think that they understand each other's attitudes. And this makes Marley's death a particular blow to Scrooge, and Wally's death a blow to Bruce. His one strand, or iota of hope from that dreadful day, has destroyed himself and taken dozens of lives with him, seemingly to strike at the Superman who survives that incident entirely unscathed. Wally becomes a reminder of Bruce's complete powerlessness and impotence to save anyone, which is why he immediately strikes out with excessive violence and force and anger to claim the kryptonite in the next scene. Instead of giving up on anger, resentment, violence, and attack, he doubles down. Okay, as often is the case, I find my notes are longer than my time, and we're still only on stave one of five. So I'm going to pick up the pace, but like any work with literary merit, you can spend pages on a line or hours on a minute, as many actually do. <laughs> if I had the time, I could do an entire series, but I think one episode in time for Christmas makes more sense. So let's go. Stave two is the ghost of Christmas past, whose visitation is made of the following episodes. First, we have Scrooge's innocent boyhood, where he's abandoned to boarding school, but for his beloved sister Fran. Then his first employer's Christmas party, where he meets his fiancée Belle, who ends their engagement in the next scene because Scrooge loves money more than her. And finally, we have the oft-omitted fourth scene showing Belle's happy family on the Christmas that Marley had died seven years prior. Here, it's harder to draw correlations between characters or scenes, but better to relate ideas or themes. My candidate for the ghost of Christmas past is perhaps Robin, who doesn't directly feature in BVS, but they do share in common brightness, paradox, and fixation on the past. The ghost of Christmas past is described as emitting a light and having an extinguisher as a cap like a candle, so Robin bears the distinction of being among the brightest in the Bat family. The ghost is described with a litany of paradoxical adjectives, young yet old, strong but weak, etc., and to some extent that might apply to the boy Wonder, his competence and power outstripping his age and size. The ghost's failure to resolve could represent the countless variations and potentials our past provides, and the array of past Robins might give us that same variation with endless potential for them all. Finally, in BVS, Robin is a relic of the past and a recollection of an earlier era when Bruce believed in his crusade. The Ghosts episodes share in common the idea that Scrooge did not start out this way, that Scrooge's malformed character was a development, something that occurred over time through repeated injury. One point of emphasis from the boarding school is how something that is a source of joy for all becomes a source of injury and isolation for Scrooge. While everyone else is looking forward to returning home for Christmas break, his father has abandoned him to boarding school such that he spends the holidays completely alone and rejected. So things like Christmas and family trigger feelings of isolation and resentment. Scrooge withdraws further into himself to cope with those feelings, only perpetuating the cycle. And we get a similar symbolic indication of this when Bruce flees from his parents' funeral procession. He interrupts the ceremony and runs from community, society, and his remaining family in Alfred. And so Bruce fails to heal the wound and just continues to descend into vigilantism to cope. The beautiful lie. Yet there was a time above, a time before, 
times when Scrooge had anticipated Christmas, felt the warmth of his family, enjoyed the festivities, and even fell in love. These feelings were injured by isolation, woundedness, anger, greed, and regret. Loss after loss and his coping with loss compounded his issues with interest over time. Scrooge loses his mother and has only a cold and hard father's rejection who exiles him to boarding school. But for his darling sister Fran, who he also loses to death after giving birth to his nephew, Scrooge pushes Belle away until he is, quote, quite alone in the world. So Scrooge loses his parents, a sibling, a spouse, a partner, and ultimately his purpose. In BVS, we get fewer scenes of the past, but we are given hints with a similar trajectory. Bruce loses his parents and his sense of the world with the death of the Waynes. He loses his partner with the death of Robin. He loses a childhood friend with the fall of Wayne Tower. And several lines of dialogue suggest other losses and betrayals along the way. 20 years in Gotham, Alfred. You've seen what promises are worth. How many good guys are left? How many stayed that way? I've known women like you. Essentially, injury sends them on a tragic trajectory born from how they cope with their injuries. Common to both is withdrawal, cynicism, and anger, followed by bitterness and cruelty and callousness. Scrooge retreats into isolation and accumulation to cope. Batman retreats into vigilantism and anger. They are victims of the times that they were powerless and without choice, and victims of the means by which they had come to cope with their powerlessness. As Scrooge believes he's unlovable, Bruce believes he's a criminal. Love leaves Scrooge as justice leaves Bruce. With all this pain, why revisit the past? Well, in both, the past, properly deployed, allows for the hardened heart to once again feel sympathy, if only for oneself. In an ideal world, we would have compassion for anyone and everyone who needed it. But in practice, our more limited imaginations incline us to feel compassion only for those like ourselves. Well, how much more do we have compassion, understanding, and grace for our own issues, which we misunderstand in our neighbors? Being reminded that they once appreciated these things and had these feelings opens them to relearn the lessons and attitudes of the past. Understanding Scrooge's psychological origins, his woundedness, gives us compassion and pity for somebody we could easily despise and condemn otherwise. And remembering the trauma that he had before, Scrooge's pity for himself will eventually become compassion for others. The past also provides lessons of how to live in the present if we'll only learn. Consider, Scrooge had a magnificent and magnanimous boss in Mr. Fezziwig, the very model of how an employer can be a source of joy for his employees. Scrooge personally saw and experienced that ideal. And yet somehow this model of the past has not caused Scrooge to treat his own employee, Bob Cratchit, the same. Similarly, Batman must have truly believed in the mission of heroism when he brought the Boy Wonder on board, the very model of how to foster justice and capability in somebody new to heroism. Bruce personally saw and experienced the value of such a relationship, yet this model of the past has not caused Batman to treat this new Superman the same. It's not a case that they lack the capacity to remember. No, their grudges run back far and deep. Scrooge's disdain for Christmas is well documented, and Batman looks at that morbid monument to Robin all the time. It's that their remembrance needs to be whole and complete, the full spectrum of truth. The spirit does not confine Scrooge's remembrances to just warm fuzzy feelings or only tragic turning points, but shows the entire paradox of our past with its highs and lows in order to heal, learn, and move forwards. This will tie into the theme of seeing and blindness that we'll discuss with the next ghost, but revisiting the past allows us to take things unconscious and confront them consciously. The past will undeniably affect our present and future. The question is how? 
And so with that in mind, let's move on to Stave 3. To summarize Stave 3, we're introduced to the ghost of Christmas Present, who takes Scrooge to see various Christmas celebrations, including his nephew Fred's and the Cratchits. And as the ghost and visitation expires, Scrooge is shown two monstrous children, ignorance and want. There are plenty of parallels here, but let's start with the ones between the ghost of Christmas Present and Superman. They are both abundant and powerful forces for good. Both are resented by our protagonists. Both are specific and symbolic and have an affinity for light, both willfully choose peace, both are foils to our anti-heroes and models for what they may be, and they both actively intervene in events, they both ask our anti-hero to change, and they both die in the story, and so on and so forth. So let's expound on those. When Dickens introduces the ghost of Christmas present, we're overwhelmed by his size, generosity, and abundance. There are mountains of food, the spirit is a giant, and he's jolly, enthusiastic, happy, and loud. He accessorizes with a torch shaped like a horn of plenty or cornucopia. And when mankind is introduced to the Superman, we're overwhelmed by his power and impact. Fire falls from the sky, buildings crumble, and this being is compared to a god. Yet these powers are used to save the world and in feats of heroism. And this creates resentment in the protagonists who conflate their issues and injuries with what these figures exude. Where was all this generosity and goodwill in Scrooge's wounded Christmas past? Where was all this power and virtue when the Waynes were gunned down, when Robin died, and so on? Their resentments spread beyond the boundaries of the figure because they're both specific and symbolic. The Ghost of Christmas Present is the incarnation of a specific day, Christmas 1843, but also a symbol of the larger holiday of Christmas, taking after Father Christmas or Santa, Saturnalian festivity, and the values beyond. Similarly, Superman is an individual, he's Superman Clark Kent Kal-El, but also THE Superman, a symbol of the larger concept of superheroes before that's a thing that exists as a concept in this universe. Outside of A Christmas Carol, one doesn't associate a living candle or the Grim Reaper as a universal symbol of Christmas the way a Santa stand-in is. And in parallel, while there are many other superheroes both in story and out, Superman stands as a symbol of them all by virtue of being the first and most enduring. But in both cases, this allows for unseemly attachments and hypocrisies, unintended and undesired by the figures. In Carol, Forgive me if I'm wrong. It has been done in your name, or at least in that of your family, said Scrooge. There are some upon this earth of yours, returned the spirit, who lay claim to know us, and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name, who are as strange to us and all our kith and kin as if they had never lived. Remember that, and charge their doings on themselves, not us. And in BVS, again and again, Superman is blamed for the issues people have with God when that isn't how he conducts or regards himself. Rather, both are beings aligned with the light who willingly choose peace. On light, the ghost's main accessory is his torch and Superman's powers source from the sun. On peace, the spirit wears a scabbard with no sword. The scabbard shows the capacity for violence is there without question, but the choice to leave it empty promotes peace on earth and goodwill towards all men. Similarly, Superman's vast array of powers and unaccountability are the capacity for vigilantism to the degree of tyrant to reshape society as his powers would allow and saw fit but instead superman makes the free will choice to pursue heroism rescue and volunteers to help 
accordingly as the embodiments of their opposition, it's only natural that they are the foil for our anti-heroes in their respective stories. The Ghost of Christmas Present is the most Christmassy spirit of them all, that thing that Scrooge hates, and so they are naturally opposites of each other. Miserly versus generous, miserable versus jolly, all alone versus 1800 brothers and the welfare of others. One is cold and practically dead, while the other is full of color and life. Superman and Batman are naturally foils in the comics, ground that we've covered repeatedly in the past before. But specific to this film, let's clarify and contrast the vigilante against the superhero. They aren't mutually exclusive, but let's refine our meaning. We might use police and firefighters as a trite example. Police are part of the justice system, while firefighters are generally not. On your own, you can consider the timing of when these jobs begin and end, and of course there's overlap, but one is primarily concerned with justice, while the other is more concerned with saving lives. The vigilante is a variation who uses their power to obtain justice where they believe the system has failed and the laws of man are broken. Whereas in this universe's introduction to the Superman means that the superhero is somebody focused on saving people publicly, using powers where the laws of nature are broken. Either one can be committed to their cause to the point of death or where they abuse their power, and this is what we see with Batman in his own pursuit of vengeance more than societal justice. Nearly all of his actions are criminal by his own admission, and even the citizens under his sphere and care give mixed reviews. By contrast, prior to the events manufactured in Nairobi, Superman's every action is basically beyond public reproach. His actions are either legal, authorized, or hostis humani generis. The phrase in Latin is hostis humani generis, which means the enemy of the human kind or race. And it means that maybe there's things that are so heinous, you don't have to pass a law to make them illegal, and you don't have to be empowered to stop or punish the perpetrator of such crimes because they're just so bad. So even if Superman had not been fighting alongside the U.S. military and with their authorization, fighting Zod to save the world would not be criminal or an engagement of the justice system. Before Superman's first costumed encounter with the Batman, he's never engaged in vigilantism or arrest. This is precisely because Superman has avoided playing the role of judge, jury, or god. For vigilantes, the question is one of force, which is why people are fixated on the question of whether Batman kills. But for superheroes, the focus is on saving people, which is why that question is oft leveled at Man of Steel. But consider, in BVS, who is Batman saving? I think the film is very intentional in showing Bruce Wayne out of the costume, saving Wallace Keefe and those kids during the BZE, the Black Zero event. But the Batman, in costume, does not seek to save anyone in particular until the Martha rescue. By contrast, that's all Superman is trying to do the entire film. Only when he confronts Batman for the first time is it more in the mode of vigilante than superhero. In that moment, Superman uses Batman's tactics against him to force his will upon another with overwhelming power, without due process or consideration, just because he can, he thinks it's right, and because he can't be stopped. And this mirrors something that the Ghost of Christmas Present does to Scrooge, which is to use his own words against him whenever Scrooge feels a sense of pity. The Ghost quotes back Scrooge's earlier solutions, put the poor into prison slave away in workhouses, or simply die to reduce the surplus population. While it exposes Scrooge's detestable views to himself, but in BVS, Batman is self-loathing and cynical of all that one might call hero. And so Superman's use of his tactics only affirms and inflames his desire to see Superman go down or bleed. Sure, it's not like Superman broke his back over his knee or outed his identity to the public or hauled him off to prison, but Batman could argue Superman cracked 
used his power to bully, and if Superman could fall just a little like that, act and be like the bat, what's to stop him from falling further with all that godlike power behind him? Of course, this is all prelude to the redemption at the end, but by the end of Carol, Scrooge doesn't act like any of the other spirits, but models his life after Christmas 1843. Similarly, Batman doesn't end up like Keefe or Robin, but becomes a superhero like Superman. Another thing that distinguishes Christmas 1843 from the other spirits is how he actively intervenes in events. While the other spirits are mute or passive, the ghost of Christmas present takes delight in adding holiday spirit to the meals of those they observe. The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway, and taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. And it was a very uncommon kind of torch, for once or twice when they were angry words between some dinner carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humor was restored directly. For they said it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day, and so it was. God love it, so it was. Is there a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch? asked Scrooge. There is. My own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? asked Scrooge. To any kindly given? To a poor one most. Why to a poor one most? asked Scrooge. Because it needs it most. Similarly, Superman is out there spreading the spirit of volunteerism, doing one's utmost for everyone, but putting particular emphasis on the areas where he's needed for what looks like a job for Superman. Both the spirit and Superman ask Scrooge and Batman to change course, and as Christmas 1843 expires by the end of his visitation, Superman dies by the end of BVS. I'm going to skip the scene-by-scene parallels and focus on the theme of social consciousness in both works. Scrooge and Batman have developed tunnel vision, and what their foils do is illustrate what they've missed. The spirit shows Scrooge the plight of the poor, but also the joy of the holiday, how his reputation has suffered, yet how his family still wishes for his company and well-being, and the value of family with the Cratchits and what they'll suffer without intervention. All of these things are interrogated, investigated, and exposed for us by Clark Kent in BVS with respect to heroism. So in Dickens' time, the Industrial Revolution's modernization had stripped away old traditions and created enormous leaps in production and progress, which caused its benefactors to gloss over, ignore, and be blind to its problems. Dickens was always conscious to show that society was grimy, corrupt, and cruel, but also full of possibility, opportunity, and change. A Dickensian work finds light in the darkest corners to combat the ethos of sitting in darkness and pretending it's light. BVS approaches the superhero similarly. The explosion of superhero media has made it easy to gloss over, ignore, and be blind to its problems, especially as to vigilantism, violence, power, and ethics. Since we get these slickly produced multi-million dollar blockbusters, we don't interrogate those concerns. Yet Snyder is always conscious to show the implications of the superhero and all its potential darkness, yet also its possibility, hope, and sustainability. These creators give their subjects their due, instead of simply idealized saccharine stories. A general Dickensian theme is the plight of the unseen, the unheard, the debtors, the poor, the children, etc. And in BVS, we're shown foreigners, human trafficking, minorities, poor, and the disabled as largely unseen. And even those with a voice get silenced in various ways. Lois is accused of romantic bias and conspiracy theories. Clark is accused of being naively unmarketable. Swanwick's career is threatened. Superman is silenced by his own restraint, by the views of the media, and later by Lex's bombing, which also silences Finch's Day of Truth, and not to mention 
the countless elimination of witnesses in Nairobi, Kahini Ziri, Wallace Keefe, Mercy Grays, and so on and so forth. This brings to light the dark corners of society and the structures of power. The same way Dickens would fully render and spotlight what society wanted to sweep under the rug and ignore. So particularly with respects to the Batman, Clark is the one who exposes or investigates his present state of being. Clark speaks with the citizens under Batman's care. Clark learns how prisoners die bearing Batman's brand. Clark sees how law enforcement turn a blind eye or endorse the Bat. Clark is told how the Batman is making children into orphans. Clark raises this with his editor and Gotham's most prominent billionaire. And the latter is akin to the spirit showing Scrooge how people perceive him behind his back. In their meeting at the fundraiser, Clark reveals this position to Bruce behind Batman's back, as it were. Now, all that said, for all the issues the investigation uncovers, there are also glimpses of hope in the darkness, too. While one citizen regards Batman as an angry hunter, the other suggests he represents just judgment. While the police ignore Batman's crimes, it's clear that they regard his help with the signal and that cartoon, and that some hold themselves to a higher standard, like that cop willing to give Clark a hint with a silent nod. Batman is still stopping criminals and a check on freaks dressed like clowns. And so, Superman shows Batman a degree of grace when he confronts him. He doesn't break his back or out his identity or arrest him like we said before, but gives him an opportunity to retire. And critically, he does go to the Bat asking for help, and indeed does ask him for help in the Martha moment. As we've said before, the point that Batman regards Superman utterly as an enemy to be done in by his spear, in that moment, Superman still sees Batman as somebody with heroic potential. Someone who would care about and be capable of saving Martha. That seed of hope parallels the oft-analyzed line from Carol describing Scrooge as solitary as an oyster. With all the implications of a hard exterior, slimy existence, and alien outlook, but critical here is the potential of a pearl. The possibility of something precious and worthy inside. And of course, the significance of pearls to the Batman mythos is a whole thing on its own. But anyways, so the issues of power, violence, and vigilantism have to be highlighted to understand the full hope of heroism. Just like the issues of the Victorian age had to be rendered to make the miser's reversal on Christmas compelling. And one of the ways Dickens embraces the horrors of that is with the appearance of ignorance and want. As the spirit begins to age to death, from beneath his robe appear two monstrous childlike creatures. Forgive me if I'm not justified in what I ask, said Scrooge, looking intently at the spirit's robe. But I see something strange and not belonging to yourself protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot or a claw? It might be a claw for the flesh that is upon it, was the spirit's sorrowful reply. Look here. From the foldings of its robe, it brought two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Oh man, look here. Look, look down here, exclaimed the ghost. They were a boy and girl, yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate too in their humility. Where graceful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with its freshest tints. A stale and shriveled hand like that of age had pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurked and glared out menacing. No change, no degradation, no perversion of humanity in any grade through all the mysteries of wonderful creation has monsters half so horrible and dread. Scrooge started back, appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. 
Spirit, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are man's, said the spirit, looking down upon them, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance, this girl is want. Beware them both, and of all their degree, but most of all, beware this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Deny it, cried the spirit, stretching out its hand towards the city. Slander those who tell it ye, emit it for your facetious purposes, and make it worse and bide the end. Have they no refuge or resource? cried Scrooge. Are there no prisons? said the spirit, turning on him for the last time with his own words. Are there no workhouses? So three quick points in brief. One is how they are attached to the figure but sourced from humanity. Two is the lack of subtlety. And three, the moral emptiness and intellectual dishonesty of the reply as a solution. So like the ever-present virtues of Christmas, the follies of mankind are always about, but highlighted by the contrast with Christmas. Which is why when Scrooge asks if they're Christmases, he replies that they are mankind's. And similarly, many of the issues attached to Superman are actually mankind's problems. Our need to label, our need for certainty, our deification and demonization and polarization, our fear, our ignorance, etc. People are afraid of what they don't understand. People hate what they don't understand. Our issues with God, a just world, politics, or power all get projected onto Superman, as is said in the rescue montage and by Martha when she meets with her son before the Senate hearing. And common to both stories is simply saying it outright. Here, Dickens isn't hiding the ball or making this something to decipher. He just calls humanity on its issues. And BVS does much the same with deification or godhood. These don't need to be decoded, but simply humbly considered. And lastly, in the response, Scrooge expresses concern over ignorance and want, to which the ghost throws back Scrooge's past words in his face. Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Meaning that Scrooge's traditional rebuttal to these problems was to punish the ignorant, throw them in prison, and put the wanting in workhouses to meet their needs with their own labor. And there's no cause for reflection, engagement, action, or compassion with these answers. And this applies metatextually to the society that Dickens was critiquing at the time. While poverty and want are an issue, ignorance can be overcome through the education of the impoverished to improve their lives and the education of the well-off to subjugate the class divide. Doom can be avoided. I think you can apply a similar metatextual analysis to the issue of superheroes. Is it not an issue that superheroes are largely unaccountable, violent vigilantes with unchecked powers? And yet as benefactors of the superhero surge, we want tales that remain ignorant of these issues, and so superhero fans will give a Scrooge-like answer. Isn't it the case that superheroes don't kill, and that there's always another way? Meaning that we will tolerate all these abuses of power and violence as long as they don't kill, and that that is all the check on their power that we need, and that there will always be a way to avoid that issue. Well, Snyder's stories are a sucker punch and a wake-up call to those wants, trying to educate us on the implications, and to temper our tastes to avoid all the pitfalls of thoughtless consumption. Okay, we're going to come back to Tiny Tim and the Martha moment, but for now, let's accelerate through stave four, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. The Phantom brings Scrooge to a Christmas in the future, where they listen in on businessmen attending a funeral for no other reason than the free lunch promised, while they badmouth the departed. Scrooge is then shown his household staff fencing off scavenged housewares, again speaking ill of the dead. Scrooge is allowed to observe the Cratchits, who mourn the death of Tiny Tim, and finally Scrooge is taken to a neglected grave where Scrooge's name is on the tombstone. I pick Flash to stand in for the ghost of Christmas yet to come for a few reasons. First, of course, it's a message from a possible future that ends up not being. Second, it's an enemy eventually turned friend. 
And third, they both have an incarnation of death. <laughs> I'm only joking about that last one, but being intangible and phasing through things like a ghost is a common application of Flash's powers. The Flash also has an afterlife, albeit for speedsters, in the form of the Speed Force, which is a central story point, and he's one of the few superheroes that have an incarnate death version of himself as a major player in his mythos. In other words, the Black Flash, who plays the role of death with a capital D. The way Scrooge fears death and hates the spirit of Christmas makes it an enemy in the way that the Flash could be to Batman, who fears and hates the superheroes. Well, how so? Remember that Lex didn't just plant anti-Kryptonian protocols in the files that he allowed to be stolen. No, Lex perceived the possibility that Bruce's animus was against all superpowered heroes. We know that the files are curated because they exclude anything on Clark's identity and Batman, as well as any supervillains that might be making their way onto the Suicide Squad shortly. Batman can be argued to have an issue with the powered promotion of heroism, for which the Flash might be. But obviously, eventually... Yeah, I, I need friends. Now granted we don't know this for Ebenezer, but I like to think that he feels a great debt of gratitude to the spirits, and that death is a friend to those with a life well lived. I like to imagine on his last Christmas, he greets the spirit warmly, as the psychopomp takes him to reunite with all the other ghosts. The ghost of Christmas past shows him how much he's changed, and all the good he's done. They reminisce about all the people who've come into his life since 1843. The latest ghost of Christmas present shows him how his life has impacted everyone around him for the better, and the ghost of Christmas future shows him his legacy of good that continues on after he's gone. Even Marley is there, his probation lightened for his part in Scrooge's turnaround. <laughs> but back to the book as written, I think the idea behind this visitation, aside from the warning, is of legacy. His reputation, his connections, his impact, and who cares. And I think we can find these things in BVS with the nightmare that accompanies the Flash. Ultimately, the nightmare shows Batman his legacy is of a scorched earth an apocalypse. Instead of nurturing Christmas in his heart, Scrooge is killed by Christmas and winds up in a neglected grave. And instead of nurturing the one who could save the world, Batman is killed by him and winds up executed in a cave. For Scrooge, the world is so upside down that the people he paid to be in his life were robbing him blind in death. And for Batman, the world is so upside down that the villains who killed his partners have become his partners in the apocalypse. It's a future where the tool used to take his parents' lives are used by him without hesitation to take others' lives. Where he's used innocents like Lois as pawns to wrong his would-be brother. Where he's lost his city, his world, and his ability to protect. Where he's even lost their loyalty as he's set up and betrayed. And just as Scrooge died in his vision, Batman dies in his. In the same way that Scrooge looks upon these events and questions who he is, the nightmare essentially asks Batman, who have I become? This is enough for Scrooge to vow to change his ways. But in BVS, it seems to act as undercurrent to justify Batman's continued crusade against Superman. Because Batman is only ever focused on the Superman, he declines to interrogate his nightmares or himself. We know this because Bruce never pursues an investigation into Lois Lane or the Superman's identity, among other gaps. And that brings us to our turning point of Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim is Scrooge's Martha moment, and how the past, present, and future coalesce. As a disabled child, he is pitied the way Scrooge pities his past self, and with the prediction of his death, he's a specter of that same fear Scrooge has for his own death. And in the present, he shows how Scrooge's current actions impact those around him. The same layers and condensation of time in the Martha moment are many. 
In Superman, as a hero, Batman sees the sense of purpose he had once in the past. Although he initially mocks it, I bet your parents taught you that you mean something, that you're here for a reason. But in Martha Kent, he sees his own mother Martha Wayne about to die. The shared name extends an extra ounce of compassion. It's not the reason, but it's a part of it. He sees himself in the role of Joe Chill, the criminal about to kill a man with the name Martha on his lips. And it's a specter of who he will be, the thing that he hates, being the perpetrator who causes another Martha to be killed. In the present, he sees how his actions impact those who are around him, Superman, Lois, Martha, and himself. And suddenly and finally, our anti-heroes want to change, to remake the future. In the fifth and final stave, Scrooge awakens to find that it's Christmas Day and he rejoices. He reverses his injustices in the opening act by giving generously, wishing all well, attending his nephew's Christmas Day party as invited, and the next day after a brief prank on Bob, he raises his salary, becomes a second father to Tiny Tim, and ultimately a good man. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more, and to Tiny Tim, who did not die. He was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Not only is it a redemption of Scrooge's soul, but a redemption of his accumulated wealth, which becomes his tool to help the poor, improve Bob's pay, and save Tiny Tim's life. Similarly, Batman is able to use his accumulated skills to save Martha, fight Doomsday, and then lead the League. He becomes a second son to Martha. Although next time, buy the bank before it forecloses on the farm, okay? <laughs> and as Scrooge keeps Christmas in his heart, Batman keeps heroism in his. I think that the secret of it is the second chance. Patrick Stewart about playing Scrooge on the stage and in film, and especially in his celebrated one-man show. And particularly this is something which affects middle-aged and older people. The sense that no matter how much you've screwed up your life, and Scrooge is a success in financial terms, he's done terrifically well, but in every other possible way, his life is a disaster. In humanitarian terms, in personal terms, in fulfillment, in relationships. And then he's given this great gift of being shown where he came from, how he started, and gradually what he has become, and the impact of what he has become has had on other people. And he's allowed to take a step back and change himself. And I start to get emotional just as I think about this. Somebody is given an opportunity to change their life and to make that change have an impact on the world around them. I find that really potent. Good spirit, assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. I will live in the past, present and the future. The spirit of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me I may wash away the writing on this stone. The power of a second chance is at the core of these stories, from Krypton's continuation in Kal-El on Earth, or Batman's redemption, or the real-world miracle that is Zack Snyder's Justice League. In the end, BVS celebrates superheroes in the sincere way that Carol celebrates Christmas. One magazine editor wrote to the author that he'd done more good and prompted more acts of beneficence by this little publication than can be traced to all the pulpits and confessionals in Christendom since Christmas 1842. It's anecdotal, but I've heard so many say I didn't understand or care about Superman until Man of Steel. Perhaps the market response wasn't like Aquaman, but what we're after isn't the commercial, but the values espoused. 
the saving grace of it is that it isn't a commercial Christmas, which ours has unfortunately become. His was not like that. His was the Christmas of fellowship of a Christian love and compassion for other people. I'm not a Christian, but I can appreciate the human quality of the Christmas that he presented and that he passionately believed in. He was uh, deeply a Christian and um, he's the best sort of Christian, not like the sort we get nowadays. This is why Snyder explores the psychological underpinnings of what it takes to turn into the Superman we know, or how one goes from a vigilante crime fighter to becoming a superhero like Batman, providing universal stories of trial and redemption. Snyder is trying to make the superhero understandable and accessible to the non-fanned and the non-fundamentalist, the person who hasn't already bought into the quote-unquote religion of superheroes with all its tropes and hand waves, to say that this is still good, this is still cool and something to aspire to, just not in that superficial commercial way that you've been sold up until now. What occurred to me during these observances was that in the religions we know best, each one has a period of a year, a month, a week, a single day, which which is meant to be a time of meditation about oneself. But what penitent period does the unbeliever, the agnostic, the atheist have? I believe I know the Christmas Carol. Dickens's fairy tale is thought of by believers and non-believers alike as a charming bit of moonshine about an old, flinty, mean man who changed his character overnight. A flash of genius, Dickens, by conceiving the idea of a resurrected, decent Scrooge, presented Christmas also as a special festival of redemption, a secular version, available to believers and non-believers, a time for everybody to take stock and lead a better life. The way Carol inspires universal values bounded by the common good, Snyder's films inspire superhero values bounded by psychology, logic, and reason. Showing the non-fan how one arrives at these ideas of volunteerism, self-sacrifice, and altruism without a magical disconnect from reality. How the codes and customs can actually arise instead of being pre-existing, inexplicable, absolute expectations. I think it's been written about A Christmas Carol that there was nothing in it to offend the Christians and there was nothing in it to offend the secularists either. That was very clever, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Given some of the polarized reaction to BVS, it would seem misplaced to call it universally inoffensive. But if you actually look at the critics, what they share in common is fundamentalism. For Carol, its critics came in the form of fundamentalist Christians of the sort who find Tolkien's fantasy impermissibly demonic and secondarily for writing critics who resent the popular short ghost story as literature. For BVS, its critics come in the form of fundamentalist comic fans of the sort who find Golden Age Superman and Batman to be impermissible renditions, and secondarily from film critics who resent the superhero blockbuster as something serious and literary. And a lot of Christian reviewers at the time get quite cross with Dickens because, of course, look at all the stuff that's not there. There's no virgin birth, there's no stable, there's no star in the east. Lots of the traditional Christmas stories gets radically transformed by Dickens in this. If we think about Marley, well, in one way he says, I'm doing a penance, but he doesn't fit into any orthodox Christian theology. The spirit of Christmas is a sort of pagan thing. So it's both in some ways faithful to Christianity, but also a radical repossession of it by Dickens and yeah. transformation into something quite different. While A Christmas Carol has proved itself over and over again, among critics and scholars, it's been treated as a minor piece of literature, less important as a novel than for its impact on 
on Christmas celebrations. It's as if the scholars can't forgive it for, well, for being so popular and for entering the cultural bloodstream. I, I mean, it's just over-familiarity, I think, basically. Or perhaps under-familiarity, to be honest. We've had so many versions which have never gone into the darker parts of Christmas. Because Christmas Carol goes very dark in the scavengers tearing away the curtains out of Scrooge's house and the scene in the churchyard is really genuinely terrifying. I think critics have tended to underrate it, possibly because it's a novella and we think of Dickens as a novelist who really develops characters over the very long haul and its very popularity, I think, has been used against it. BVS was routinely criticized for not being a four-quadrant film or theme park ride, for not adhering to the popular mascot versions of its characters, for failing to stay in its lane. But even the immensely popular Carol knew that it couldn't be all things to all people. In particular, it displaces many easy narratives in favor of real ones. Consider the ideal of the superhero in place of Christianity in the following clip featuring Cheryl Kincaid, a wheelchair-bound Presbyterian minister, speaking on how a Christmas carol affected her. But my dad had these books about Dickens, and I would read them at my home, and I got the idea that Christianity could be a struggle. And I loved Dickens for that. When you read the books, they seem like ordinary people that are really struggling to get through this life, trying to struggle with an idea of faith, an idea of living a good life in the midst of a hard world. After she was paralyzed... And you were really in a pretty bad state, weren't you? I was. Um, I did have people come alongside of me and show me a great deal of love during that time, but I was pretty depressed. And that's when my sister took me to see A Christmas Carol. But seeing it this time, I heard it different for the first time. A Tiny Tim's line. Do you mind if I quote the line to you? Please do. Now? The line that I've heard a million times, Mrs. Cratchit asked Mr. Cratchit, how did Tiny Tim do in church? And he says, as good as gold, said Bob, and much better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much, and he thinks of the strangest things you ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped that people saw him in church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. And I started to weep. I started to sob. And people even turned around and looked at me, and I couldn't stop. I think what what struck me was that Tiny Tim wasn't asking to be healed. He was just asking to be a witness. Charles Dickens didn't buy into the prosperity theology that if we serve God, everything will be okay. He bought into a theology that life is tough and you serve God in spite of things being okay. It doesn't read like a regular ghost story, does it? It reads like a tale of repentance. So we've talked about the just world fallacy before. These films aren't afraid to say that good intentions are insufficient to guarantee good outcomes, that heroism is hard, disappointing, and impossible at times, but absolutely worth the journey. Even for something as family-friendly as The Muppets knows that this story isn't trying to coddle little children. Whoa, that's scary stuff. Hey, should we be worried about the kids in the audience? No, it's all right. This is culture. And that might be our response to the recent uproar around Zack Snyder's Justice League expected R rating. <laughs> Well, he was broadly Christian in his view and his outlook on life. He railed against formalized religion, anything that had a big institution that over-grandized something which should be quite personal and spiritual. And he was first and foremost a, a social reformer and campaigner, and his literary work was one of many vehicles he used for that. So those values that we think of as Christian values were there, but not in a way which was extrapolated and connected to a formalized religion. 
There's no question that Zack is a superhero fan, but he isn't slavishly attached to any particular canon, instead absorbing the entire mythos and presenting his personal mix, returning to first principles. But that's Dickens for you all over, isn't it? He takes the ideas of Christianity and he weaves them into a different kind of a thing. He fabulates them, and uh, that's the glory and delight of him. And at a minimum, this means an openness and acceptance to those diverging tastes and views. Yes, even to those who dislike these films. <laughs> After all, peace on earth and goodwill to all mankind. Right? <laughs> so that it's such a huge thing to recognize that you're mortal. And I think for Dickens, a lot of his ethical thinking is a sense that we're all fellow passengers to the yeah. grave. Yeah. That's a big, audacious claim yeah. of being one unified human family. And the way that the Bible kind of comes out and asserts it is it could have been more hmm. overt, potentially. Uh, no, I... The telling a story where all the characters in the story emerge from one couple. Yeah. Well, that seems pretty overt to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, it causes challenges for us today, trying to understand and relate that to humanity's genetic history and all that. And so that's a whole separate conversation. But narratively, it's saying the whole human family is actually unified in with a common origin yeah. and identity. I guess I just take that for granted because of mm. the time and place I've grown up in. Oh, sure. Because yeah, everyone's already kind of decided that is yeah. the case. I could do a lot more homework on this, but I know it was an active debate in ancient cultures about what family originated from the gods, what families originated from the dirt. It was a way that some tribes or nations could assert their superiority over another, is to say they were from a different origin than that other group over there. The story derives its values from the belief that we are one family, from cradle to grave, that our mothers share the same name. I think the very last line of the book is perhaps the, the crucial line, which is, as Tiny Tim remarked, God bless us, everyone. It's the everyone that's the crucial thing. Everybody has to be part of this. <laughs> well, I could belabor the point, but I've got festivities to attend. I don't think I even hit half of my notes, but if you listen this long, I'm sure on your own, you can tease out all the other parallels and take this many more other places, be that the let them eat cake beat, the religious symbols and devotion, the idea of endless adaptation, variation, and interpretation. We could talk about time travel, psychotherapy, socialism, existentialism, bah humbug and the great beyond, and so much more. But as you know, I've rambled on long enough. I wish you and yours happy holidays and a Merry Christmas. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. son. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone.